When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Extraterrestrial Reality. Uh, today we're going to talk about the fantastic story of Antonio Villas Boas. Um, this guy claimed that in 1957, while he was uh, plowing a field, he lived in Brazil. This happened in Brazil. Uh, he was plowing a field at night because it was, you know, he, it was hot days, and they would he would work at night. Uh, it was a family farm, and he was plowing a field, and uh, a strange craft showed up. Uh, some weird beings dressed in coveralls and, and helmets that uh, had hoses coming out of them. Um, these beings basically grabbed them, dragged him onto this craft. And then uh, after a little while, he was presented with a completely naked uh, platinum blonde petite female uh, uh, with very strange features. Uh, she looked human, but not quite. And uh, she didn't talk. None of these beings talked. They 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 made sounds like dogs, barks, and yelps. They were very strange sounds. They didn't sound. He he, he was unable to recreate this sound. Um, when questioned about, like he said, it was just something. You, you, he's never heard it. He never heard anything like it before. And uh, basically, ended up having sex with this being. This. Uh, and then after he was done, after it was finished, and they, uh, you know, uh, they dressed him and then, you know, put him back in the field where, where they kidnapped him from. Basically, the whole ordeal lasted about uh, over four hours, four hours and 15 minutes. Um, he thought it was very important to tell authorities about this. So he contacted a, a reporter at a newspaper, a local newspaper, and uh uh, Jose uh, Jose Martins, and uh, and then Jose Martins didn't know what to do with this uh, story, and so he contacted a doctor, um, Olavio Olavo Fontes, and uh, they at the time Villas Boas was you know didn't have, he didn't have a lot of money, and he needed money to travel to Rio de Janeiro to meet with these uh, with the reporter and uh, the doctor. Uh, to tell the story because they needed to meet him before they could try to, they weren't going to put this in the paper, you know, in any, any newspaper at the time, because they needed to, you know, talk to this guy first. So they both, both the, he met with them in, in Dr. Fontes's office. And then he gave a dep, uh, deposition and, uh, you know, he told him the whole story basically. And he, the only proof that he had was, uh, he seemed like he had some, uh, uh, radiation burns. He he actually this event happened in nineteen uh, October of nineteen fifty seven, and it wasn't until February of uh, nineteen fifty eight when he finally got to tell uh, somebody this this story. When he told the doctor, Doctor Fontes and and the reporter, they were both there at the same time uh, when he told the story. But he did have uh, uh, the the only evidence that he had of this was there were marks on his face from where these beings drew blood from him. Uh, his, uh, uh, there were, he had pains throughout his body. He had nausea, headaches, loss of appetite, uh, and, and the burns, he had little small red, reddish nodule, nodules, uh, on his skin. Uh, and, uh, there were wounds that, uh, with, with, they seemed like could, could have been caused by radiation. That's all he had. So he told this story. He thought it was important to let the public know, to let the authorities know that something's going on here, uh, and uh, they didn't believe him. Uh, Doctor Fontes and the reporter they both found that he was completely believable, but uh, the conclusion was that uh, you know it, they just couldn't believe the story. You know, he they they didn't think he was a psychopath or anything, so they basically concluded that uh, he was. Uh, telling a lie or it was a it was a great hoaxer but anyway before we uh, before we get into you know the story now the one thing to keep in mind now this happened in 57 
the Betty and Barney Hill abduction didn't happen until 61. The story involving Villas Boas didn't come out, wasn't made, you know, didn't come out internationally or nobody really knew about it until the mid 60s. You know, when the Betty and Barney Hill story had already been, you know, had already been made public. So, and so this story, they, these guys, these people, after they heard Villas Boas tell this story to them, uh, in 1958, they didn't they didn't go public with it because they just thought he was a hoaxer. So and and he he didn't really uh, you know he didn't protest. This guy never made any money from this story, by the way, either. And actually, you know, he started he was just a a, a a poor farmer. He started off as a poor farmer, you know, and he was 23 years old when this incident happened. But he did go on to become an attorney, and he got married, and he had four kids, and he was very successful, and he and he stood by his story for the rest of his life. He died in the early 90s. But anyway, we're going to, uh, th- this deposition, he, he provided a deposition uh, uh, to doctor, to the, to this doctor, and uh, and uh, with, and the reporter was in the room at the time when the deposition was given, and uh, we're going to go, we're going to get, read this, read through this deposition right now, and it's pretty lengthy, but it's, it's highly entertaining, and it's highly educational, and uh, it's fantastic. I mean, it's. It's funny in a way, and actually, you know, this. Uh, speaking of funny, there, it's actually I, I, I've. There was a book that I that I had bought. the first time I read about this was actually it was in a, a comic book. It was a gra- it was like a graphic novel kind of format. It was called the Big Book of the Unexplained. This is what it looks like: the Big Book of the Unexplained. And it was uh, uh, a compilation of different kind of UFOs, weird stuff. UFOs, Bigfoot, you know, time travel, curses, Loch Ness monster, all kinds of stuff. It was written by a guy named Doug Munch, and it ha- and he had it had artists uh, from over forty different artists uh, contributed, you know, to, to put all these different little stories together inside this book. Uh, and it was done in an amusing way and, and an informational way and, an, and a fun way, and it made it fun. And actually, the the story involving Villas Boas in this book. Uh, it, they, they, it's it's entitled uh, South American Stud to the Stars, you know. But uh, uh, it's a very in- it's an interesting story. Uh, it's it's somewhat amusing at the same time. It's somewhat fantastic, and I I believe this guy was telling the truth. I don't see why would you make something like this up. It doesn't make any sense. Anyway, let's get into. It. We're going to read the deposition that he provided four months after the incident uh, to. Uh, to the reporter, Martins, and also Dr. Fontes. My name is Antonio Villas Boas. I am 23 years old and a farmer by profession. I live with my family on a farm which we own near the town of Francisco de Sal in the state of Minas Gerais, close to the border with the state of Sao Paulo. I have two brothers and three sisters, all of whom live in the same neighborhood. There were two more, but they have died. I am the youngest son but one. We men all work on the farm, where we have many fields and plantations under cultivation. We also own a petrol-driven tractor, International, for plowing. When the time comes round for cultivation, we work the tractor in two shifts. During the day, the work is done by two laborers whom we hire for the job. At night, it is usually I who does it, working alone, so then I sleep during the day. Or at times, I work with one of my brothers. I am single and in good health. I work hard and I am also taking a correspondence course, studying whenever I can. It was a sacrifice for me to come to Rio, for I should not have left the farm where I am badly needed, but I felt it was my duty to come here and relate the strange happenings in which I have been involved, and I am ready to comply with whatever you gentlemen may deem best, including making a declaration before the civil or military authorities. I would, however, like to return home as speedily as possible, for I am very worried about the situation in which I left the farm. It all began on the night of October 5th, 1957. There had been a party there at our house, and we had gone to bed later than usual at 11 o'clock. I was in my room with my brother, Joa Villas Boas, because of the heat. I decided to open the shutters of the window, which looked out onto the yard of the farm. Then I saw, right in the middle of the yard, a silvery fluorescent reflection, brighter than moonlight, 
lighting up the whole ground. It was a very white light, and I don't know where it came from. It was as though it came from high up above, like the light of a car headlamp shining downwards, spreading its light all around. But in the sky, there was nothing to be seen from which the light could be coming. I decided to call my brother and showed it to him, but he he is a very unbelieving person and said it was better that we go to sleep. Then I closed the shutters and we both lay down to sleep. But some time later, being unable to overcome my curiosity, I opened the shutters again. The light was still there in the same place. I continued to watch. Then suddenly it started to move slowly towards my window. Quickly I closed the shutters, so quickly indeed that it made a loud noise and awoke my brother, who was already asleep. Together in the darkness of our room, we watched the light penetrating through the little slats of the shutters and then moving towards the roof and shining down between the tiles. There it finally went out and did not return. The second episode occurred on the night of October 14th. It must have been between 9.30 and 10 p.m., though I cannot guarantee this as I had no time, no watch on me. I was working the tractor plowing a field along with any other brother. Suddenly, we saw a very bright light, so bright that it hurt the eyes, stationary at the northern end of the field. When we saw it, it was already there and was big and round, approximately the size of a cartwheel. It seemed to be at a height of about a 100 meters and was of a light red color, illuminating a large area of the ground. There must have been some object inside the light, but I cannot positively affirm this, since the light was much too strong for me to be able to see anything. I called my brother to go over there with me and see what it was. He did not want to, so I went alone. When I got near the thing, it suddenly moved and, with enormous speed, shifted to the southern end of the field, where it stopped again. I went after it again, and the same maneuver was repeated. This time it went back to where it had been at the start. I went on trying, and the same maneuver was repeated twenty times. By then I was tired, so I stopped following it and went back and joined my brother. The light remained stationary in the distance for a few minutes longer. From time to time it seemed to give out rays in all directions, with flashes like the setting sun. Then the light suddenly vanished, just as though it had been turned out. I am not certain if this is what actually happened, for I cannot recall whether I kept looking in that direction all the time. I may have looked away in another direction for a few moments, and it may have climbed rapidly and disappeared before I looked over there again. On the following day, which was October 15th, I was alone, plowing with the tractor at the same place. It was a cold night, and the sky was very clear, with many stars. At precisely 1 o'clock a.m., I suddenly saw a red star in the sky. It really looked like one of those big, brightly shining stars, but it wasn't, as soon as I discovered, as I soon discovered, for it rapidly began to grow larger, as though coming in my direction. In a few moments, it had grown into a very luminous egg-shaped object, flying toward me at a terrific speed. It was moving so fast that it was above the tractor before I had time to think what I should do. There this object then suddenly halted and it descended till it was perhaps 50 meters or so above my head, lighting up the tractor and all the ground around, as though it were daylight, with a pale red glare so powerful that my tractor lights, which were on, were completely swamped by it. I was terrified, for I had no idea what it was. I thought of making my escape on the tractor, but I saw that with the low speed it could develop, my chances of success would be slight, given the high speed shown by the object, which meanwhile was still stationary there in the air. I also thought of jumping down and escaping on foot, but the soft earth turned up by the plow blades would have been a difficult obstacle in the dark. It would have been difficult for me to run with my legs sinking knee-deep into, in, into that treacherous soil, and if I put a foot in a hole, I might even break a leg. For, ha for perhaps about two minutes, I remained in this agonized state, not knowing what to do. But then the luminous object moved forward and stopped again at a distance of some 10 or 15 meters in front of the tractor. Then it began to drop toward the ground very slowly. It came nearer and nearer, and I was able now to see for the first time that it was a strange machine, rather rounded in shape and surrounded by little purplish lights and with an enormous red headlight in front from which all the light had been coming that I had seen when it was higher up in the sky and that had prevented me from making out any other details. I could see the shape of the machine clearly 
which was like a large elongated egg with three metal spurs in front, one in the middle and one on each side. There were three metal shafts, thick at the bases and pointed at the tips. I could not distinguish their color, for they were enveloped by a powerful reddish phosphorus or fluorescent light like that of a luminous sign of the same shade as the front headlight. On the upper part of the machine, there was something which was revolving at great speed and also giving off a powerful powerful fluorescent reddish light. At the moment when the machine reduced speed to land, this light changed to a greenish, greenish color, which corresponded, such was my impression, to a diminution in the speed of rotation of that revolving part, which at this point seemed to be taking on the shape of a round dish or a flattened cupola. The shape of it could not be made out before. I cannot say whether this was the actual shape of that revolving part on top of the machine or whether this was simply the impression given by its movement, for at no moment did it ever stop moving, not even later when the craft was on the ground. Naturally, the majority of the details that I am describing now were only observed by me later. In that first moment, I was too nervous and agitated to see much, so much so that when I saw three metal supports forming a tripod emerge beneath the machine when it was at only a few meters from the ground, I totally lost the little self-control that I had left. Those metal legs were obviously meant to take the weight of the craft when it touched the ground on landing. I did not manage to see this actually happen, for I started up the tractor, its engine had been still running all this time, and shifted it round to one side, trying to open, open out a route of escape but I had only traveled a few meters when the engine suddenly died and, simultaneously, the tractor lights went out. I am, I am unable to explain how this happened, for the starting key was in and the lights were on. I tried to get the engine to start again, but the starter was isolated and gave no sign of life. Then I opened the tractor door on the opposite side from where the machine was and jumped down to the ground and started to run. But it seems I had lost precious time trying to get the tractor started, for I had only run a few steps when somebody grabbed one of my arms. My pursuer was a short individual, reaching to my shoulder and dressed in strange clothing. In my desperation, I swung around sharply and gave him a hefty push, which threw him off balance. This forced him to let go of me, and he fell on his back to the ground about two meters away from me. I tried to use the advantage gained to continue my flight, but I was promptly attacked simultaneously by three other individuals from the sides and the rear. They grabbed me by the arms and legs and lifted me off the ground, thus robbing me of any possibility of defense. I could only struggle and twist, but their grip on me was firm and they did not let go. I started to yell loudly for help and to curse them, demanding to be released. I noticed that as they were dragging me toward the machine, my speech seemed to arouse their surprise or curiosity, for they stopped and peered attentively at my face every time I spoke, though without loosening their firm grip on me. This relieved me a little as to their intentions, but I still did not stop struggling. In this manner, they carried me toward their machine, which was standing at a height of about two meters above the ground, on the three metal supports which I have already mentioned. There was an open door in the rear half of the craft. This door opened out from top to bottom, forming as if, it, as if it were a bridge, at the end of which a metal ladder was fixed, made of the same silvery metal that was on the walls of the machine. This ladder was unrolled to the ground. I was hoisted up on it, a job that was not easy for them. The ladder was narrow, hardly giving me enough room for two persons side by side. Furthermore, it was movable and flexible, swinging from side to side with my efforts to free myself. There was also a round metal rail on each side of the ladder of perhaps the thickness of a broomstick for aid in mounting. I grabbed onto it several times, trying to stop them from hauling me up, and this made them keep stopping in order to unclasp my hands. This rail was flexible, too. I had the impression later, when coming down the ladder, that the rail was not of one piece, but made of small pieces of metal linked to each other. Once inside the machine, I saw that we had entered a small square room. Its polished metal walls 
glittered with the reflections of the fluorescent light coming from the metal ceiling and given off by lots of small square lamps set in the metal metal of the ceiling and running all around the edge of it, near the tops of the walls. I could not count how many of these lamps there were, for they now lowered my feet to the floor, and the outer door came up and closed, with the ladder rolled up and fastened to it. The lighting was so good that it seemed like daylight, but even in that fluorescent white light, it was impossible to make out any longer where the outer door had been, for in closing, it seemed to have turned into part of the wall. I could only tell where it had been because of the metal ladder attached to the wall. I was unable to observe further details because one of the men, they were five, there were five in all, signed to me with his hand to go toward another room that could be glimpsed through an open door on the side opposite to the outer entrance. I do not know whether this second door was already open when I entered the craft, for I had not looked in that direction till then. I decided to obey him, for the men were still holding me tightly, and I was now shut in there with them and had no other choice. We left the little room in which I saw no furniture or instruments, and entered a much larger one, semi-oval in shape, and in the same manner as the other compartment, and with the same silvery polished metal walls. I believe that this room was in the center of the machine for in the middle of the room there was a metal column running from ceiling to floor wide at the top and bottom and quite a bit narrower in the middle it was round and seemed solid i do not believe it was there for only for decoration it must have served to support the weight of the ceiling the only furniture that i could see was a strangely strangely shaped table that stood on one side of the room surrounded by several backless swivel chairs like the round stools used in bars they were all made of the same white metal the table and also the stools all tapered off down below into one single leg which in the case of the table, was fixed to the floor or linked to a movable ring held fast by three supports that stuck out on each side and were set into the floor. This latter was the case with the stools, permitting those who sat on them to turn in any direction. For what seemed an interminable period, I remained standing in that room, still gripped by the arms by two men, while those strange people watched me and talked about me. I say talked only as a way of putting it, for in truth for what I was hearing bore no resemblance whatsoever to human speech. It was a series of barks, slightly resembling the sounds made by a dog. This resemblance was very slight, but it was but it is the only only one I can give in an attempt to describe those sounds which were so totally different from anything that I, that I have ever heard till now. They were slow barks, they were slow barks and yelps, neither very clear nor very hoarse, some longer, some shorter, at times containing several different sounds all at once, and at other times ending in a quaver. But they were simply sounds, animal barks, and nothing could be distinguished that could be taken as the sound of a syllable or a word in a foreign language. Not a thing. To me, it all sounded alike, so that I, I, so that I am unable to return, retain a word of it. I can't explain how it is that those folks could understand each other in that way. I still shudder when I think of those sounds. I can't reproduce them for you gentlemen to hear. My voice just, just isn't made for that. When the barking stopped, it seemed that they had settled everything, for they grabbed me again, the five of them, and started forcibly undressing me. Again we struggled. I am resisting and trying to make it as hard as possible for them. I protested and yelled and swore. They obviously could not understand me, but, I, but stopped and looked at me as though trying to make me understand that they were polite people. Besides, although using force, they never at any moment hurt me badly, and they did not even tear my clothes, except perhaps my shirt, which was already torn before, so that I cannot be certain on that point. Finally, they had me, t they had me totally naked, and I was again worried to death, not knowing what would happen next. Then one of the men approached me with something in his hand. It seemed to be a sort of wet sponge, and with it he began to spread a liquid all over my skin. It could not have been one of those rubber sponges, for it was far softer. The liquid, liquid was as clear as water, but quite thick and without smell. I thought it was some sort of oil, but was wrong, for my skin did not become greasy or oily. They spread this liquid all over my body. I was cold, for the night temperature outside was already cold, and it was markedly colder still inside those two rooms in the machine. 
When they undressed me, I began to shiver, and now there was this liquid to make matters worse. But it seems that it dried quickly, and in the end I did not feel much difference. I was then led by three of the men toward a closed door that was on the side opposite to where we had come in. Making signs with their hands that I should accompany them and barking at each other from time to time, they moved in that direction with me in the middle. The man in front pushed something in the middle of the door. I couldn't see what it was, maybe a handle or a button which made it open inwards in two halves like a barroom door. When closed, this door ran from the ceiling to the floor and on the top part of it, it bore a sort of luminous inscription or something similar traced out in red symbols, which, owing to an effect of the light, seemed to stand out about two inches in front of the metal of the door. This inscription was the only thing of its kind that I saw in the machine. The signs were scrawls completely different from what we know as lettering. I tried to memorize their shapes, and that was what I sketched down in the letter that I sent to Signor Zhao Martins. At the present time, I no longer remember how they looked. But, returning to the events, the door in question led into a smaller room, squarish and lit in the same way as the others. After we had entered, I and two of the men, the door closed again behind us. I glanced back then and saw something that I don't know how to explain. There was no, no door at all there anymore. All that could be seen was a wall like the other walls. I do not know how this that was done, unless when the door closed, some sort of screen came down that hid it, hid it from view. I could not understand it. What is certain is that shortly afterwards, the wall opened and it was a door again. I saw no screen. This time, two more men came in, carrying in their hands two pretty thick rubber, red rubber tubes, each over a meter long. I cannot say whether... There was anything inside them, but I do know that they were hollow. One of these tubes was fixed at one of its ends to a chalice-shaped glass flask. The other end of the tube had a nozzle shaped like a cupping glass, which was applied to the skin of my chin here, where you can see this dark mark which, which has remained as a scar. Before that, however, the man who was doing the job squeezed the tube with his hands as though driving the air out of it. I felt no pain or prickling at the time, merely the sensation that my skin was being sucked in or drawn in. But later the spot began to burn and itch, and subsequently I discovered that the skin had been torn and grazed. The rubber tube having been applied to me, I saw my blood slowly entering the chalice till it was half full. Then... The thing was stopped and the tube withdrawn and replaced by the other tube which was in reserve. Then I was bled once again on the chin from from this other side, here where the gentleman can see this other dark mark like the first one. This time the chalice was filled to the brim and then the cupping glass with, was withdrawn. The skin was grazed at this place too, burning and itching just as on the other side. Then the men went out, the door closed behind them and I was left alone. I was left there for a long time, perhaps over half an hour. The room was empty except only for a large couch in the middle of it, a sort of bed maybe, but without a headboard or rim, and a bit uncomfortable for lying on, being very high in the middle, where there was quite a hump. But it was soft as though made of foam rubber and was covered with a thick gray material, also soft. I sat down on it as I was tired after such a struggle and so much emotion. It was then that I noticed a strange smell and began to feel sick. It was as though I was breathing a thick smoke that was suffocating me and it gave the effect of painted cloth burning. Perhaps... That is what it really was. For examining the walls, I now noticed for the first time the existence of a number of small metallic tubes sticking out on a level with my head, with closed ends but pricked full of holes as in a shower bath, from which was coming a gray smoke that dissolved in the air. This smoke was the cause of the smell. I cannot say whether the smoke was already coming out when the men were taking the blood from me in the other room, as I had not noticed it before. Perhaps... With the door being opened and closed, the air had been circulating better in there and so gave me no reason to notice anything. But now, at any rate, I did not feel well and the nausea increased so much that I ended up vomiting. When the desire to do so came upon me, I ran over to a corner of the room where I was violently sick and brought up everything. After that, the difficulty in breathing left me, but I was still rather nauseated from the smell of that smoke. After that, I was very dispirited, waiting there for something to happen. I must explain that up to this 
time, I still had not the slightest idea of the physical appearance or the features of those strange men. All five were dressed in very tight-fitting overalls made of a thick but soft cloth, gray in color, with black bands here and there. This garment went right up to the neck, where it joined a sort of helmet made of a material, I don't know what it was, of the same color, which seemed stiffer and was reinforced at the back and in front by strips of thin metal, one of them being triangular on a level with the nose. These helmets hid everything, leaving visible only the eyes of the people through two round windows similar to the lenses used in spectacles. Through the through these windows, the men gazed at me with their eyes, which appeared quite a bit smaller than ours, but I think this was an effect produced by the windows. They all had light-colored eyes, which appeared to me to be blue, but I cannot guarantee this. Above the eyes, the height of their helmets must have corresponded to double the size of a normal head. It is probable that there was something else as well in the helmets on top of the heads, but nothing could be seen from the outside. But on the top, from the center of the head, three round silvery tubes emerged. I cannot say whether they were made of rubber or, or were metallic, which were a little thinner than a garden hose pipe. These tubes, one in the center and one on each side, were smooth and they ran backwards and downwards, curving in toward the ribs. There they entered the clothing, into which they were fitted in a way that I don't know how to explain. The one in the center entered on the, on the line of the spine. The other two were fixed in, one on each side below the shoulders, at a point about four inches below the armpits, almost at the sides, where the ribs start. I started. I noticed nothing, no protuberance or lump that would indicate that these tubes were connected to some box or instrument hidden under the clothing. The sleeves of the overalls were long and tight-fitting, running as far as the wrists, where they were continued by thick gloves of the same color with five fingers, which must have hindered somewhat their hand movements. I observed in this connection that the men could not bend the fingers completely to the extent of touching their palm palms with the tips of their fingers. This difficulty, however did not prevent them from gripping me firmly, nor from deftly handling the rubber tubes for extracting my blood. The clothing must have been a sort of uniform for all the members of the crew wore at breast level a sort of round red shield the size of, of a slice of pineapple, which from time to time gave off luminous reflections. There were no lights from the shields themselves, but reflections like those of the pieces of a red glass that are above the rear lights of automobiles, which reflect the headlights of another car just as though they contained lights themselves. From this shield on the center of the breast came a strip of silver, silvery cloth or laminated metal which joined on to a broad, tight-fitting, claspless belt, the color of which I do not remember. No pockets were visible on any of the overalls, nor did I see any buttons. The trousers were also tight-fitting over the seat, thighs, and legs without any visible wrinkle or crease in the cloth, there was no clear separation at the ankle between trousers and shoes, which were a continuation of each other, being part of one whole. The soles of the feet, however, had a detail different from ours. They were very thick, two or three inches thick, and quite turned up or arched up in front, so that the ends of the shoes, which looked like tennis shoes, were quite curved up in the front, but without ending in a point like the shoes in the history books of olden times. From what I saw afterward, those shoes must have been a lot bigger than the feet inside them. Despite this, the men's gait was quite free and easy, and they were quite nimble in their movements. Nevertheless, that completely clo closed Overall, no doubt did perhaps interfere somewhat in their movements, for they were always a bit stiff in their walk. They were all the same height as myself, perhaps a bit shorter in view of the helmets, except for just one of them, namely the one who had first caught hold of me outside. This one didn't come up to my chin. They all seemed to be strong, but not so strong that I should have been afraid of being beaten by them had I fought them one at a time. I think that in the open, I could have faced any one of them on equal terms. But this had no no bearing on the situation in which I now found myself. After an immense interval, a noise at the door made me jump up with a start. I turned in that direction and had a tremendous surprise. The door was open and a woman was entering, walking in my direction. She came slowly, unhurriedly, perhaps amused at the surprise that must have been written on my face. I was flabbergasted and not without good reason. The woman was stark naked, as naked as I was, and barefoot too. Moreover, she was beautiful. 
though of a different type from the women I had known. Her hair was fair, almost white, like hair bleached with peroxide, smooth, not very abundant, reaching to halfway down her neck and with the ends curling inwards and parted in the center. Her eyes were large and blue, more elongated than round, being slanted outwards like the slit eyes of those girls who make themselves up fancifully to look like Arabian princesses. That is how they wore, with the difference that the that here the thing was natural for there was no makeup whatever. Her nose was straight without being pointed, nor, nor turned up, nor too big. What was different was the contour of her face, for the cheekbones were very high, making the face very wide, much wider than in the South American Indian women. But then immediately below the face, narrowed very sharply, terminating in a pointed chin. This feature gave the lower half of her face a quite triangular shape. Her lips were very thin, hardly visible. Her ears, which I saw later, were small and appeared no different from those of the women I know. The high cheeks gave the impression that there was a projecting bone underneath, but as I saw later, they were soft and fleshy to the touch and there was no sensation of bone. Her body was much more beautiful than that of any woman I, I have ever known before. It was slim with high and well-separated breasts, thin waist and small stomach, wide hips and large thighs. Her feet were small, her hands long and narrow, and her fingers and nails were normal. She was quite a lot shorter than I, her, her head reaching up to my shoulder. This woman came toward me silently, looking at me with the expression of someone wanting something, and she embraced me suddenly and began to rub her head from side to side against my face. At the same time, I felt her body all glued to mine and also making movements. Her skin was white like that of the blonde women here, and on the arms was covered with freckles. I smelt no perfume on her skin or her hair, apart from the feminine odor. The door was closed again, alone, th alone there with that woman embracing me and giving me clearly to understand what she wanted. I began to get excited. This seems incredible in the situation in which I found myself. I think that the liquid that they had rubbed on to my skin was the cause of this. They must have done it purposely. All I know is that I became uncontrollably excited sexually, a thing that had never happened to me before. I ended up forgetting everything, and I caught hold, hold of the woman, responding to her caresses with other and greater caresses. It was a normal act, and she behaved just as any woman would as she did yet again after more caresses. Finally, she was tired and breathing rapidly. I was still keen, but she was now refusing, trying to escape, to avoid me, to finish with it all. When I noticed this, I cooled off too. That was what they wanted of me, a good stallion to improve their stock. In the final count, that, that was all it was. I was angry, but then I resolved to pay no importance to it. Anyway, I had some enjoyable moments. Obviously, I would not exchange our, our woman women for her i like a woman with whom you can talk and converse and make yourself understood which wasn't the case here furthermore some of the grunts that i heard coming from that woman's mouth at certain moments nearly spoiled everything giving the disagreeable impression that i was with an animal one thing that i noticed was that she never kissed me once at a certain moment i recall that she opened her mouth as though she were going to do so but it ended up with a gentle bite on my chin which shows that it was not a kiss another thing that i noted was that her hair in the armpits and in another place was very red almost the color of blood shortly after we had separated the door opened one of the men appeared on the threshold and called the woman then she went out but before going out she turned to me pointed at her belly and then pointed toward me with a smile or something like it she finally pointed towards the sky i think it was in the direction of the south then she went out I interpreted this gesture as a warning that she was going to return to take me away with her to wherever she lived. Because of this, I am still frightened even today. If they come back to catch me again, then I'm lost. I don't want to be parted from my own folk and my land, not on any account. Then the, men, then the man entered with my clothes over his arm. He gestured to me to get dressed, and I obeyed him in silence. All my things were there in my pockets except for the one item that was missing, my Homero brand lighter. I don't know whether it was taken by them or fell out during the struggle when I was captured. For that reason, I didn't even try to protest. 
We then went out and returned to the other room. Three of the crew of the machine were sitting there in those swivel chairs, conversing, or rather grunting, among themselves. The one who was with me went over to join them, leaving me in the middle of the room near the table of which I spoke earlier. I was now completely calm as I knew that they would not do me any harm. While they settled their affairs, I tried to pass the time in observing and fixing in my memory all details of everything that I could see, walls, furniture, uniforms, etc. At a given moment, I noticed that on the table near the men, there was a square box with a glass lid on it, protecting a dial like the dial of an alarm clock. There was a hand there on it and a black mark at the place corresponding to 6 o'clock. There were similar marks at the points corresponding to 9 o'clock and 3 o'clock. At the place corresponding to 12 o'clock, it was different. There were four little black marks there in a row, side by side. I don't know how to explain their meaning, but that's how they were there. At first, I thought the instrument was a kind of clock because one of the men glanced at it from time to time, but I don't think it was, for I kept my eye on it for quite a long while, and at no time did I see the hand moving. If it had been a clock, this would have had to, hap had, would have, had to have happened as time was passing. Then I got the idea to grab that thing. I remembered that I needed to take something with me to prove my adventure. If I could get that box, the problem would be solved. It might be that, seeing my interest in it, the men would decide to make me a present for, uh, for it. I slowly got nearer and nearer to it. The men were not paying attention, and suddenly I grabbed the instrument with both hands and pulled it off the table. It was heavy, weighing perhaps more than two kilos, but I didn't even have the time to examine it. As quick as lightning, one of the men jumped up and, pushing me aside, snatched it from me angrily and went and put it back in its place. I drew away until I could feel my back against the nearest wall. I stayed there quietly, though I was not frightened. I am not afraid of any man. But it was better to remain still, for it had been proved that they only showed me consideration when I behaved properly. Why attempt anything that would have no results? The only thing I did was to scratch the wall with my nails, trying to see whether I could detach a sliver of that metal. But my nails glanced off the polished wall without finding any purchase. Moreover, the metal was hard and I couldn't get any of it, so I just stayed there waiting. I never saw the woman again, either dressed or naked. After she went out of the other, after she went out of the other, uh, after she went out of the other room, but I found out where she was. On the forward part of that big room, there was another door through which I had not been. It was now slightly ajar, and from time to time, I heard noises coming from there, as though caused by someone moving about. It could only be the woman, for all the others were in the same room with me, in their strange uniforms and helmets. I imagine that that front compartment must have corresponded to the room where the pilot would be who was in charge of the navigation of the machine, but I was not able to verify this. At last, one of the men rose and gestured to me that I should accompany him. The others remained seated without looking at the rules. We walked toward the small anteroom and as far as the outer door, which was open again, with the ladder already rolled down. However, we did not go down it, for the man made a sign to me to accompany him toward a platform which was there, on either side of the door. This platform went around the machine and, although narrow, permitted one to go along it in either direction. To begin with, we went along the toward the front. The first thing I noticed was a sort of metal projection square in, in shape and firmly fixed into the side of the machine and sticking out. There was a similar thing on the other side. Had these two parts not been so small, I would have judged that they were wings for aiding the thing to fly. From their appearance, I think that their purpose was perhaps to move up or down, controlling the rise or the descent of the machine. I admit, however, that at no moment, even when the craft took off, did I notice any movement of them. And so I cannot explain what purpose they served. Further on, on toward the front, the man pointed out to me the three metal shafts that I had already mentioned, solidly set the two outer ones in the sides of the machine and the middle one right in the front as though they were three metal spurs. They were all the same shape and length, very thick at the base and tapering off to a fine point at the tip. The position of all three was horizontal. I don't know whether they were of the same metal as the craft because they were giving off a slight reddish phosphorus, as though they were red hot. However, I felt no heat. A little bit above the bases of them, where they were attached to the craft, there were reddish lights set in, set in it. 
the two side lights were smaller and round. The front one was enormous, also round, and was the front headlight of the machine, which I have already described. All around the hull of the craft and slightly above the platform on which they cast, cast the reddish light were countless small square lamps similar in appearance to those used for the interior lighting of the machine. In front of the platform, the, in front, the platform did not go the whole way around, but ended near a large semi-projecting thick sheet of glass elongated towards the sides and stoutly embedded in the wet metalwork. Perhaps it served for seeing through, for there were no windows anywhere at all. I think, however, that that would be difficult, for seen from the outside, the glass seemed very blurred. Seen from inside, I don't know how it would be, but I don't believe it could be any more transparent. I think that those front spurs released the energy that drove the machine forward because when it took off, its luminosity increased extraordinarily, merging completely with the lights of the headlamps. Having seen the front part of the machine, we returned to the rear. The back part bulged out much more than the front part. But before that, we stopped for a few moments and the man pointed upwards to where the enormous dish-shaped cupola was rotating. It was turning slowly, completely lit up by a greenish fluorescent light coming from I don't know where. Even with that slow movement, you could hear a noise like the sound of air being drawn in by a vacuum cleaner, a sort of whistle like the sound of air in movement when it is being sucked through, the, through lots of little holes. I did not see any holes, however. That is just by way of comparison. Later, when the machine began to rise from the ground, the revolving dish increased its speed to such a point that it became invisible, and then only the light could be seen, the brightness of which also increased quite a lot, and it changed color, turning to a vivid red. At that moment, the sound also increased, showing that there was a connection with the speed of rotation of the round dish revolving on the top of the craft, and turned into a veritable hum or loud whine. I didn't understand the reasons for these changes, and I don't understand what would be the purpose of the luminous revolving dish, which never stopped turning for a single moment. But it must have had some use since it was there. There seemed to be a small reddish light in the center of that revolving cupola or dish, but the movement prevented me from verifying this with certainty. Returning now to the back part of the machine, we again passed in front of the door and walked on, following the rearward rearward curve right at the back in the place where the tail of an aircraft would project there was a rectangular piece of metal set in a vertical position and running from front to back across the platform but it was quite low no higher than my knee and i was able to step over it easily to go to the other side and come back again as i was doing so i noticed on the floor of the platform what one on either side of the plate, two inset reddish lights in the shape of thick, bulging cuts. They resembled aircraft lights, though they were not flashing. I think, however, that the piece of metal in question was a sort of rudder for changing the machine's direction. At any rate, I saw this piece of metal move towards one side at that moment when the machine, then stationary in the air at a certain height after taking off, abruptly changed direction before starting to move off at a fantastic speed. Having also seen the rear part of the machine, we re returned to the door. My guide now pointed to the metal ladder and si signed, me, signed to me to go down it. I obeyed. When I was down on the ground, I looked up. He was still there. Then he pointed to himself and then pointed to the ground and finally to the sky toward the south. Then he made a sign to me to step back and he disappeared into the machine. The metal ladder now began to get shorter, the steps arranging themselves one above the other like a stack of boards. When the ladder reached the top, the top of the door, which, when open, was the floor, began it in, it in its turn to rise until it fitted into the wall of the craft and became invisible. The lights of the metal spurs and of the headlamps and of the revolving dish all became brighter, while the dish was spinning faster and faster. Slowly, the craft began to rise vertically. At that moment, the three shafts of the tripod on which it had been standing rose toward the sides, the lower part of each leg narrowing, rounded, and ending in an enlarged foot began to enter the upper part, which was much thicker and square, and when that was finished, the top parts began to enter the base of the machine. Finally, there was no longer anything to be seen there. The base was smooth and polished, as though that the tripod had never existed. I did not manage to make out any marks indicating the places where the shafts had fitted in. Those people certainly did a good, good job of it.
The craft continued to rise slowly into the air until it had reached a height of some 30 to 50 meters. There it had stopped for a few seconds, and at the same time its luminosity began to get still greater. The whirring noise of the air being displaced became much more intense, and the revolving dish began to turn at a fearful speed, while its light changed through various colors till it was a vivid red. At that moment, the machine suddenly changed direction with an abrupt movement, making a louder noise, a sort of beat. This was when I saw the the part that I have called the rudder move to one side. Then, listing slightly to one side, that strange machine shot off like a bullet toward the south at such a speed that it was gone from sight in a few seconds. Then I went back to my tractor. I left the craft at roughly 5.30 in the morning, having entered it at 1.15 in the early hours. So I was there for 4 hours and 15 minutes, a very long time indeed. When I start, tried to start the engine of the tractor, I found that it was still that it still was not working. I looked to see if there was some def- defect and discovered that one of the battery leads had been disconnected and was out of place. Somebody had done that, for a well-secured battery lead doesn't come undone by itself. I had checked them when I left home. It must have been done by one of the men after the tractor had stopped with the, with its engine dead, probably while they were capturing me. It could have been done to prevent me from escaping again should I manage to free myself from their hold. They were pretty sharp-witted people. There was nothing that they hadn't foreseen. Apart from my mother, I haven't told my story to anybody till now. She said I should never get mixed up with those people again. I did, did not have the courage to tell my father, for I had already told him about the the light that had appeared in the paddock of the farm, and he had not believed me because he said I I had been seeing things. Later, I decided to write Martin's after reading one of his articles in November, in which he appealed to readers to report to him all cases to do with the flying saucers. Had I possessed enough money, I would have come earlier, but as I didn't, I had to wait until he said he would help me with the cost of the journey. I am at your disposal, gentlemen. If you think I should return home, I will go home tomorrow, but if you wish me to stay longer, I shall agree to do so. That is why I came. Well, now, when, after hearing all of this, after hearing this you know, after meeting with Villas Boas and hearing this whole story, uh, Fontes, you know, came to the conclusion that, you know, he's, you know, he he's telling a very detailed story and, he, and he's, this guy's not a psychopath. He's not crazy. Uh, but he did determine this. He said, but despite it all, the very content of his story is itself the biggest argument against its veracity. Certain details are too fantastic to be believed, unfortunately for him. In these circumstances, we are left with the hypothesis that he is an extremely clever liar, a hoaxer endowed with an amazing imagination and of a rare intelligence, capable of telling an entirely original story, completely different in its genre from Everything that has appeared up to now. His memory must also be phenomenal. For example, the detailed description that he gave us of the strange machine tallies precisely with a carved wooden model which he sent to Martins in November. Be it noted, moreover, that the craft is entirely different from the flying saucers described up till now, as if he were determined to be original even in this. So basically, they just... they couldn't believe it. It just, yeah, the guy seems very sincere, but but the story is just we don't believe the story. Period. End of story, and that's it. Um, but you know what's interesting? You know, you know, going through this whole uh, deposition, it's similar in, in in a way. to I just just the, the, in the last podcast where I was talking about the uh, Pascagoula, Mississippi, nineteen seventy three abduction case. Um, you know, with, with two, uh, Charles Hickson and Calvin Parker um, were basically fishing, uh, you know, off a pier uh, uh, on the Pascagoula River. Next thing you know, a flying saucer or some sort of weird craft shows up. Uh, they get dragged into the thing. Uh, uh, you know, uh, Hickson gets dragged, gets taken to one area, Parker to another, and then uh, Parker gets laid on a table. He can't move. 
and 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 some f- weird looking female comes in and and actually he 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 Park, Parker said oh this female looked looked really hot right and uh he you know he, he she came in now now she now unlike the uh Villas Boas story this this female didn't uh, come on to him and you know have sex with him what she did though she came in and she had these weird hand weird middle finger two two of her middle fingers on her hand were longer than a human's uh, very strange looking he said and she shoved those fingers down his throat and was moving moving him around and caused bleeding uh you know was she getting some sort of uh you know uh, dna samples for some reason you know perhaps i don't know but another 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 thing too uh the 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 that woman uh that Parker saw in '73. She made weird grunting sounds. He he made a, He said it sounded sound like like an alligator's mating call. Uh, were these the kind of same kind of? I don't know. This sounds somewhat different. He's saying uh, Villas Boa said what he heard sounded like yelping and barking and just com- completely indecipherable. But anyway, it's a fantastic story. Uh, I think it's true. I don't think this guy was lying. Uh, I don't see any reason why. He would have made this up. I mean, it, like again, for after he told the story, you know, he was upset. Like this is according according to uh, Doctor Fontes, you know, when, uh, you know, he was discouraged when they told him they weren't, weren't going to publish it in the paper. It says Villas Boas was visibly discouraged, uh, 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 and he says he was quite upset, but did not protest, nor did he attempt to discuss the matter. He simply said, "Well, in that case, if you don't need me anymore." I'll go back home tomorrow morning. If you should want to make a trip out there one of these days, I shall be very glad to receive you. If you need anything else from, from me, you only have to write. Uh, to console him in his disappointment, I told him, this is Fontes, I told him that if he was set on seeing his adventure in print, he had only to go to the newspapers, which would certainly print it at this time, just when the subject was back in the headlines because of the photographs of the Trinidad Island saucer. But citing as an example this case of the photographer Bartona, I warned him that for many people he would be merely a madman or a hoaxer. His reply ran as follows. I would challenge those accusing me of being a madman or a liar to come out to my home district and make an investigation of me. They would see whether whether the folk there do not consider me to be a normal and honorable man. If after all that they still continue to doubt me, then so much the worse for them. You know, now he again, the story eventually did become public uh, in the mid '60s. There, there were other some other people investigated it, um, but again, this guy had this amazing story to tell, and you know, I don't know what to say about it except I think that he was telling the truth. I don't see why he would have made it up. I know it sounds ridiculously far fetched, but. I mean, compared to other abduction cases, I mean, now this is different than what we heard later on. I mean, but are, are they all again? Are these the same same beings that are that are involved, like in abductions in the seventies and eighties and nineties up till today? I mean, are they the same ones? Are they were they the greys except in disguise, or were they something else? Now, he said he could see the only one thing he could see was he saw their eyes, and he he thought they looked like they were small, tiny blue eyes. Now that doesn't sound like a gray. I don't know, but, you know, a weird case and, uh, you know, very, and the other thing is too, I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's amazing. I mean, could you imagine in that, being in that situation? I mean, was, was that an aphrodisiac that, or, or, or that stuff that they put on him? Was that an aphrodisiac that made him want to have sex with this woman that he just met, you know? You know, that just come walks in a room and just, you know, next thing you know, he's having sex with somebody he never even met, just met her. You know, and she didn't even, and she's making weird sounds, sound like an animal though. But he felt compelled to have sex with her. He wanted to have it. He just couldn't resist. He couldn't resist it. Amazing story. But hey, I guess it's one of those things you have to take it or leave it. But, you know, uh, you know, now that we have the, the Pentagon, you know, as, as a lot of us realize now, the Pentagon's starting to, to tell the truth about this a little bit. It's starting to renege a little bit, too. And we still got some uh, nonsense coming from the debunkers. They still can't accept reality. Um, but uh, there's something here. Uh, that's, the, it's a, that's It's a fact. 
I mean, there's something here. There, there, there's something more intelligent than humans here. And this is just another story, another instance where something really, really, you know, again, you can't, it's, this guy couldn't prove it. I mean, other than the, the wounds that he had and the, the apparent radiation burns that he had, that's all he had. But, you know, that's, you know, that's not going to stand up in a court of law, I don't think. Uh, unfortunately, none of, none of his uh, other family members were there the night where he was taken. Uh, maybe they would have been taken, too. Uh, but it's a very interesting story. And, again, I, I, I will leave links uh, so you can read it yourself. And there's a lot more information here. There's a couple of different th- links I'll leave for it. And also I'll leave a link for the uh, Big Book of the Unexplained as well, which has a very amusing story in there about this. But, uh, yep, I think it's real. What do you think?